Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I am here with Bob Stone, who is the author of Can't Nobody Do Me Like Jesus, Photographs from the Sacred Steel Community. Uh, Bob, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm delighted. I'm hoping you can start by talking a little bit about how you got interested in the Sacred Steel community and putting together this book and this compilation of photographs. Well, in uh, in 1992, I was working as a folklorist for the Florida Folklife Program, which is the offices were located way up in north central Florida near the Georgia border. And a, a friend of mine, a musician friend of mine, uh, operated one of those go-to stores for musicians way down in South Florida in Hollywood near Fort Lauderdale. And to make a long story short, these African-American men were coming in and they played uh, to buy things and they played uh, steel guitars. And he, uh, my friend Mike, automatically uh, knew that I was always looking for contacts and he had the sort of store that where a lot of musicians passed through and uh, he gave me my first contacts and and the first musicians uh, contact information he got, they said, oh, uh, <clears throat> I'm not really that good. You need to hear either Aubrey Gent or Glenn Lee, who were the, the top players in Florida at the time. And so it, it went very quickly, really. And of course, what attracted me was that it was when one thinks of the steel guitar, uh, nowadays you'd think of country music, the twangy country music. And it, it, previous generations, you might think of uh, Hawaiian music where the, the instrument originated. But uh, this stuff had a very much, uh, what they were playing had a very much uh, an African-American voice. Uh, if you can imagine uh, hymns, uh, when they played the slow gospel numbers and hymns, imagine if uh, Aretha Franklin played the steel guitar. That's what it sounded like. So we jumped right on it. I got uh, permission from my boss to journey down south and do a reconnaissance trip. Sort of uh, got a, uh, a few uh, short pieces on uh, digital audio tape at the time and uh, got a grant from the NEA to do a survey project in Florida and we were off. But, you know, it really attracted me, what really attracted me in the beginning and all my colleagues as well was everybody was, wow, this is really something. Just the music itself was was incredible. So before we sort of talk about the photographs you took, as you were talking, it made me um, want to make sure for people who don't aren't familiar for you to maybe describe the what the steel guitar is right so um and and those forms that the the sort of two forms that it traditionally takes i'm so glad you asked that question it the (laughs) instrument couldn't be more confusing even steel guitarists themselves can't agree on all the terminology but uh, the instrument gets its name not from the material it's made out of, but from the bar that the player, a right-handed player, would use in his left hands 
to make notes. Instead of on a standard guitar, you fret it with the fingers of your left hand. On a steel guitar, you use a steel bar uh, to make notes on the strings. Uh, and it comes in two forms, what's commonly nowadays called the lap steel. Uh, in the old days, and matter of fact, many members of the old, uh, the older members of these churches still refer to the Hawaiian guitar because that's where it originated in the very late 19th century. The more modern form that more people are familiar with is the pedal steel, and that's the instrument that makes that twangy sound you hear in country music. Uh, today, a lot of the uh, uh, players in the, the sacred steel players in the house of God and the church of the living God play the pedal steel, but by and large, they don't make it twang. You can do it. Uh, you can play that instrument. It offers a lot of harmonic possibilities without getting the twangy sound. So that's what the instrument is. In fact, um, just to backtrack a little bit, the earliest players that I documented in uh, the, the house of God, Keith Dominion, had a direct connection to the Hawaiians, uh, Hawaiian music fad of the 1930s. Troman Eason heard a Hawaiian player on the radio in Philadelphia, something, something like probably 1936 or 1937, and took lessons from a Hawaiian. So, in fact, many people in the church still call it the Hawaiian guitar or just the Hawaiian. You went in and you photographed these churches. And, and so before, can you talk a little bit about the history of the the Pentecost, the history of the house of God and the church of the living God and, and sort of situate us in wh where you came and entered? Certainly uh, the house of God uh, and uh, it's the house of God, Keith Dominion and the church of the living God, Jewel Dominion. And those are shortened versions of the church names. They both have much longer names, but they started out uh, uh, as a common church that was founded by uh, uh, Mother Mary Tate in 1903. And they, they claim it to be the uh, earliest Pentecostal church founded by a woman. And uh, I haven't uh, researched that thoroughly, but I have, uh, from what I know, that's probably correct. So they celebrated their centennial in 2003. In 1930, she died suddenly of uh, complications due to frostbite. And the church split into three dominions. Uh, there was a very long legal battle. There was, the church already had considerable assets, particularly real, real estate. And uh, so they split into three dominions. Each one was named after uh, the leader. So it's the Keith, the Jewel, and the Lewis dominion. The Keith and Jewel dominions both have this steel guitar tradition, which started in the earliest days of the electric steel guitar, which was in the uh, early and mid-1930s. And rather quickly, the, uh, the instrument became, uh, rose to the hierarchy the top of the hierarchy in both churches, hierarchy of musical instruments. In other words, it is the instrument that plays the lead part. It plays almost all the time, except during the announcements and uh, the early part of the sermon and during a group prayer. It, if a service is two hours, two and a half hours long, uh, the steel guitarist is probably playing for two hours. And they developed their own way of playing, uh, their own style of playing, their own tunings and instrument set and equipment setups. 
And uh, it, this probably uh, a, a factor that came into play here is that um, there in the Pentecostal church, holiness Pentecostal churches, you're either of the church or of the world. And they really didn't officially allow and still don't officially allow their musicians or anyone to listen to secular music or to have it in the home. Uh, so they developed uh, their own sort of musical styles. Naturally, of course, some of them did listen to secular music and were influenced by, in the old days, blues and, and rhythm and blues. And of course, other gospel music quartets, which were popular for so long. And today, similarly, even more so, it's really hard to stop the outside influences. But they developed their own way, and they're very proud of it. They don't want to play like country music musicians. They don't want to play like Hawaiian musicians. They have their own way of playing. And you went in, and so you came in as an outsider, and all your photographs are black and white. And do you want to talk a little bit about that um relationship to being able to come in as an outsider and photograph the church and, and, and how you put this sort of collection together, thinking about that and, and thinking about your role in presenting the church and presenting this. Sure. In, in many ways, this, this book, uh, especially to me personally, but I think if you look at the, uh, uh, overall a body of work that I've done. I, I, uh, I did a 300-page book for University of Illinois Press, published in 2010. Um, I uh, produced uh, eight CDs for the Arhuli uh, label uh, and, and directed the Arhuli Foundation's documentary video and then, but uh, still, there was something missing, and something that uh, is very dear to me. I'm a very much a visual person, and uh, so I really wanted to do this still photograph book. And I must say, it's been very, very well received by the community, the musicians, and other me members of the community whom I keep in touch with. And uh, so that's really nice that they're so enthusiastic. Um, <clears throat> I started out, of course, yes, I am an outsider. I'm white and I'm not Pentecostal. <laughs> so, uh, but, but right away, uh, we got this very small grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, Folk Arts, uh, Folk and Traditional Arts Division. And uh, I got the uh, chief overseer, the national head of the church, just happened to live. He resided in Sarasota, Florida. So I got a letter of support from him. So that really, that really helped. And uh, it's, and the, and that was the very first project was in Florida that I did for the when I was working for the Florida Folklife Program, uh, and uh, basically, you know, then after that, after 1995, when the Bureau of Florida Folklife uh, uh, relocated to Tallahassee and was no longer a bureau, I stayed here in Gainesville and kept working as a contractor, so that in a way freed me up to do this work. Uh, in other states, and even in Florida, on my own. And I did it on my own dime and just because I, I thought this was very, very much worth doing. So, uh, you know, this work went on from, began in 1992, and, and uh, I was still pretty active even beyond the, the this photo book stops in 2008. But uh, I, 
I think 2006, excuse me, but I've even, I continue to do a little work, not too much. But uh, so people would see me over and over and over again. You know, uh, I did some radio programs. Uh, they became to trust me and value me. And, uh, and uh, you know, the Eason family, Willie Eason, one of the pioneers, they considered me their son. They called me their son. Uh, the Lee boys called me Uncle Bob. Some of the other uh, musicians called me Uncle Bob. So uh, I got to be sort of, you know, one of the, a member of the community in a, in a sense. And uh, that's, you know, I can't emphasize enough for people that are doing folklore and field documentation of traditional culture that you'd learn quickly that coming back and, you know, uh, working in the long term is so, so much better than the usual short-term stuff. You know, we used to jokingly call a lot of our field work uh, slash and burn because we'd come in real quick, three hours, give me your story, and I'm gone, I'm off to do another person, you know, so it's nice to spend years, and people would say, I just saw you in Nashville, yeah, you know, and I'm a Floridian, and they'd say, I saw you in Mississippi, <laughs> you know, so, so uh, that, that that was all very good, and, and uh, I've really enjoyed it, and continue to enjoy it, I have many friendships that continue, many people that I'm in, in uh, regular correspondence with. So, so the first, I'm hearing my echo. <laughs> the first section of your book or the first series of photographs focuses on the church meeting. And, and you sort of have um, not only the, the building itself, right, from the outside and inside, but a lot uh, and, and pictures of the steel guitars, but also sort of the community, the praise, all of that. Um, so you want to share a little bit about that, the church meeting and what you were trying to sort of present and capture in this group, in this series of photographs? Certainly. Well, one of the first things I realized is that you can only take so many uh, photographs of steel guitarists before it starts getting boring, even to the person who's most interested in that sort of thing. And so I, uh, you know, uh, as a folklorist, I wanted to present the, every aspect of the culture that I could. And, and uh, as you noted, I, where I had it, uh, I, I begin uh, with, a, before I show what's going on inside the church, I try and show an exterior shot, give a, uh, a feel for the architecture, which ranges all the way from these small country churches on, on dirt sand roads out in the woods to uh, the, the big grand uh, uh, headquarters church of the house of God in Nashville, Tennessee, which has a 2000 seat auditorium and, uh, you know, bronze statue of, of the founder out front. And I want to show all the age groups, uh, have, uh, youth, youth choruses, uh, and many of the things that go on. I, I was also, you know, I wanted to show some of the shouting as it's called and holy dancing, but you know, that's very easy to sensationalize. Uh, and sort of exploit. And I, I didn't want to do that. I want to show that it goes on, but uh, I was very conscious of not overdoing that. And of course, I wanted to show the geographic range, which is all the way from uh, extreme South Florida, uh, all the way to uh, uh, upstate New York, uh, out, out to Mississippi, uh, you know, the Carolinas, Georgia, uh, <clears throat> 
so that's that's what I've tried to do, uh, and uh, and the, of course the interaction between the congregation and the musicians. And I'm just flipping through some pages. Oh, uh, the uh, they have a somewhat unusual uh, way of handling the offertory, rather than uh, the collection plates being passed through the congregation. Uh, the the ushers lead the congregation uh, up to up front to the collection plates, uh, and they do sort of a swinging, swaggering march. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes, if it's a special events, the ushers will even do uh, full 360-degree turns and dips. And uh, while the band plays uh, uh, swinging music, you know, like uh, usually a medley when the saints go marching in, there's a tune that they call the House of God March. Uh, you know, I've even showed uh, uh, it, it, some of the larger events. There'll be a, a, a vendor out in the parking lot, just a, a local person. Uh, as we know, in many African-American communities, uh, people do whatever they can to bring in income. And they may have a, two or three jobs and, and, and might do something like sell candy and snacks uh, during a break at a, at a two or three day assembly, that sort of thing. Yeah, I appreciated um, some of the ways in which you presented different angles, right? So it's, it's not only sort of looking directly at the musicians or the front of the church, but those views where you are seem to be in the front of the church, sort of looking out past the musicians at the congregation, right? And, and showing us sort of different perspectives. Um, yes, about the, about the only thing I, you know, one of the things that I, that you can't do is you can't get up on the pulpit next to the, the preacher. That's off limits. You know, you can only get so close, no matter how friendly you are. That's just not something you do. But yes, I've, I've as you can see, I've, I've, I've stood right there with the musicians, right, right, looking over the shoulder of the steel guitarist, say, and so you can see the, the audience and the steel guitarist interacting. And of course, that's very important to the musicians. They read, I said audience, I meant congregation. They read that congregation. They're there, the musicians are there for one purpose, and that's to enhance the service, to, to give it energy, uh, enhance whatever's going on. And so they take all their cues from, from the minister, the preacher, and from the congregation. Yeah, one of the images that I really uh, liked in this section was one, um, the worship service House of God in Rush, New York, where the congregation, for the most part, is kneeling. There are some standing with the musicians um, playing, and it, it's very, uh, right, it's very um, intimate. It's this very intimate picture of that relationship between the musicians and the congregation and how they use music as a part of their service, right, in worship. Yes, absolutely. That's that's a, a common thing, you know, and call it's a call to the altar or an altar prayer. And, uh, and uh, you know, the musicians may or may not play. Uh, if they are not playing, they bow their heads and the congregation is up close. And uh, there's usually a, a, a minister leading them in prayer and there may be a couple of minutes of silent prayer. So, uh, yeah, I've tried to, to document every and present every aspect I could. 
Yes, including uh, like the ones from Tupelo, Mississippi as well. And you have the cooking in the kitchen of the church, I'm guessing of the church, right? Uh, but then juxtaposed with uh, a woman with the Elvis Presley fan. Uh, and, and, and I love that that was from Tupelo. Um, yes, so well, every, everyone, everyone, in, <laughs> of course, you know, a lot of people in Tulo, Tupelo have an Elvis claim of some sort. But in this case, it's really true. Uh, Elvis, when he was living in Tupelo, which was when he was in junior high school, I think, you know, he was already bringing his guitar to school every day and uh, loved gospel music. And he lived on the edge of the neighborhood where the, the church is and where they had, uh, at the time he was living there, they had uh, these uh, big assemblies, big sort of revivals in, in uh, tents. So he lived a quarter mile from where that tent was. So uh, one of the ministers who worked with me very well, uh, uh, Bishop Wortham, he, we walked over there. I had uh, information from Peter Goralnik, who wrote that very thorough two volumes on, on Elvis. And uh, I was able, the house isn't there. Elvis's old house isn't there, but uh, the, the, the location still is. So I actually went there and walked around with, with the bishop. Yeah, so so uh, and, and those uh, usually uh, d- d- uh, the church fans will have a you know image of Martin Luther King or or someone praying or something. But in Tupelo, those fans were furnished by the Convention Bureau, and it had a, a picture of the young Elvis with words about uh, on the obverse side that that was the birthplace of Elvis. So, so, you, so you, the next sort of section of photos is on wakes, funerals, and tributes. And so can you talk a little bit about the role of all of those, right? We often talk about the funeral, but the wakes and the tributes, all of it together in the church and what you were trying to get, what you were trying to capture. Yeah, well, here. of course, those are some of the, uh, especially the funerals, which they uh, call home goings, are some of the most emotional uh, moments that in the, in the church setting. And, uh, you know, they, their, uh, uh, emotions are very freely expressed. It's, it's, it's not, uh, uh, unusual to see somebody faint or fall out or get, uh, filled, so filled with the spirit that they collapse, uh, especially when they're viewing the coffin, the, 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 the deceased in the casket. Uh, the wakes the, you're, are the night before, and the wakes, I've seen wakes that were very reserved, uh, in the case of Henry Nelson's wake in New York, and, and uh, but then Glenn Lee's uh, wake down in Perrine, wakes, you know, 15, 20 miles south of Miami, that was very, <laughs> lots, lots of energy, a lot of musicians, lots of holy dancing and shouting, and uh of course, you know, uh, people give recollections uh, that the the minister um, at both the uh, the wake, well, especially at the home going, will say, you know, people are, are mourning and expressing their feelings. Uh, uh, but he'll they'll per- periodically say, we're here to celebrate that this person has passed on to to heaven, you know, is free from the, the trouble and toil and pain of uh, mortal life. And so it's very, very celebratory too. Uh, I've showed some photos of uh, uh, Henry Nelson's funeral uh, homegoing. 
they had his steel guitar up in front, in front of his casket. Uh, and then uh, also in at the viewing the night before the wake, uh, they had his, his finger picks on his hand, uh, you know, to denote how, just how important it was that he was a musician in the church. And he, he played in church for about 40 years, I think. He was really a top musician and very, very influential to this day, even though he's deceased several years ago. The tributes are uh, uh, anniversaries, they're usually called. And it can be for a musician or a, a, a senior uh, minister, uh, or even a birthday celebration. I documented uh, uh, Ted Beard's uh, uh, 70th birthday celebration. They invited me up to Michigan for that and uh, uh, documented tributes. And uh, tribute will include things like, uh, of course, people will come to the, the podium and and, uh, and make remarks about the person that's uh, who's uh, being given the tribute, but they'll also make donations of, of uh, cash or check donations to the, which the MC handles. And, and, and of course, uh, the way it works is that uh, you're expected to reciprocate. You know, if, if you're being held in tribute, uh, then next year you, you'll, uh, you'll go to somebody else's uh, uh, tribute ceremony or anniversary and uh, participate and donate and so forth. It's a long tradition in lots of African-American churches, not just these two. Yeah, I, I'll say that my the shot I really love the most, the photograph, is your tight shot of Henry Nelson's hands with his finger picks on it at the um, I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, you know, I, ha I was very careful. I had to, I, I cleared that with the, his surviving family members uh, to make sure that they were okay. Not so much with that shot, but the one where you can see his whole body. But, uh, you know, I, th I thought that was important to show those finger picks. Lorenzo Harrison, uh, who was the the second in command and the, the top musician who reigned supreme for, for decades in the Jewel Dominion, uh, he was buried with a steel guitar. Henry was not buried with his, but Lorenzo Harrison was. So the, you move from sort of these weights and funerals in to, and gatherings to looking at style and adornment, the, celebrating God's glory through style and adornment. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in this section and what you're sort of sure. trying to show and portray? Well, uh, I dare say that most people are, are aware of, uh, you know, gospel hats, women's hats, and certainly they're, they're absolutely wonderful and fascinating, creative, you know, and they range from, from uh, creations that were made by sort of cottage industry uh, all the way to uh, uh fancy professional designs. I've talked to women from South Florida who would fly to New York City to buy hats. <laughs> I've talked to women that have 250 hats. Now what's interesting is that it's 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 you know the the scriptural basis of this is is uh, for covering your head. But uh, then it got to be elaborate. Uh, it took off uh, there's also a a, a scripture 
that says if you have long hair, <laughs> if you have considerable hair, that that can be considered a covering for your head. So there are some women who choose not to wear hats. Uh, men, of course, uh, don't wear hats in church, but uh, hats are, uh, they come and go in popularity. Right now, uh, according to some people, they're, they're seeing a, a, a renaissance in popularity. Men wear them to church, but not inside church. Uh, and of course, then there's the uh, uh, just the, the clothing and, and other accoutrements. Uh, what's interesting is that it's not monolithic. I'd say, especially among the the men, there are men who wear who look like you know businessmen <laughs> uh, wearing uh, uh, navy blue suits and conservative ties, and there are others who are who who might wear red suits. Or, or uh, not even a suit, but uh, there's one fellow I photograph. It's too bad it's not in color, but but he was wearing a neon green, uh, uh, you know, iridescent uh, outfit. Uh, so it's it, it, and there's some some uh, you know differences of opinion among, especially among the men. Uh, you know, uh, that's too much. You know, you shouldn't wear that to church. Uh, you know, so some of the more conservative types must say, but. But it, they all view it as a way of expressing the, uh, God's glory and, and, uh, and, and grace. And as uh, one uh, uh, musician told me, and I, I've known him for years and, and seen him in many settings, both uh, in church and in casual clothes, he always looks really sharp. And he says, well, we're ambassadors for Christ. So, so when when uh, I'm out of my house, I always want to look my best, whether it's I'm in shorts and sneakers or or going to church. Uh, I'm an ambassador for Christ and I want to present myself that way and, and, and give glory to God. Yes, I appreciated it in this section we that you the most of the photographs are of women and women in their um hats, but that you do have a few photographs of men. Um, so we sort of see that it isn't just about the women and the hats and that we sort of think about, but it is the whole community really thinking about how they are presenting themselves. Yes. And, and of course, uh, as you might imagine, and as you, uh, I'm sure you observed, uh, many photographs, you know, uh, could be in one section or the other, you know, so, uh, you know, you might have a, a, a well, uh, for for instance, some of the portraits, the uh, musicians are dressed up, and so they could go in in the uh, section about uh, uh, style and adornment. Uh, and so, it was, but of course, I had to uh, I had to balance this book. And one one thing I was very aware of, and I had a friend who's also a visual artist uh, who worked with me. And, you know, when you open the book to a two page spread, you don't want photos that conflict or compete with one another or just don't work together. And of course, if you move one to another section, you have to fill its place. And uh, so I, it was uh, uh, something I put quite a quite a bit of work into. But yes, you and, and I think what's nice is if you read a little essay about style and adornment, then as you look at the other photos, you, you would be naturally aware that what's going on in terms of, you know, like the portrait of Aubrey Jen and his wife, what they're wearing, yeah, so forth. Yeah, and, and yes, so that next section is the portrait. So 
Uh, could you share a little bit about, you know, sort of who you chose, sort of what, you know, a little bit about what you were trying to get at and doing that? Well, well the focus is 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 primarily on the musicians. There's also some some vocalist singers, and and of of. And uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Dorothy Ann Jacobs was a person who helped me a lot, just in in various ways along my journey in documenting this. And we we still keep in touch. And she had a very nice uh, uh, hairstyle, uh, just had been done. So so I wanted that. And and uh, you know, just something uh, where you can contemplate the individual a little more. You know, close up. And uh, hopefully some of their personality comes through. It's that's the challenge. And but I wanted to show that and, and uh, you know, show that uh, I have Lisa Lang in here, who's known as Lady of Steel. You know, she's in casual dress and, and just show the range of ages and uh, personalities and. Uh, and hopefully bring some of that personality to the to the page. Uh, Yes, I'm glad you brought up Lisa Lang because I was going to bring her up if you did <laughs> to have a female. I, I really love uh, what you captured with uh, the Henry Nelson and Willie Easton photograph with them together. Uh, and, and I also really love the one on the Elder yes. Acorn Coffee with the guitar and with the, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and, and really sort and, and also coffee. Yes, on yes. he was uh, uh, um, quite a guy and, and an important historical figure. So I was so glad I got that. It wasn't too many years later that he passed. Uh, uh, and it was my good luck that uh, he spent his, basically his whole life in Philadelphia. I'm not real sure when he was born. I've, I haven't been able to determine that uh, post-interview, but but. Uh, he lived almost his whole life in Philadelphia, and then when he retired, uh, they moved back to his home, uh, his his wife's home state of South Carolina. You know, kind of got away from the city. As as you may know, uh, interestingly enough, uh, a lot of uh, black people whose families moved to the north uh, during the Great Migration wind up retiring in the South. Interesting. So then you have a section on the sacred steel conventions. So can you talk a little bit about those conventions? Because it seems like sometimes, because, well, the conventions and then you, the festivals and conferences, right? Um, there's a little bit of controversy, I don't know if controversy is the right word, about sort of participating outside of the church, as you said before. So um, what do you got going on in that? Uh, yeah, well, the sacred steel conventions were, uh, special the first one was held in 2000 they were uh, uh not not church events uh they were events put, put on independent of the church by the musicians of course with the resistance excuse me assistance of others and uh to to uh showcase their their musical traditions and the first one was at rollins college in the uh the tony uh, community uh, town of uh Winter Park, Florida, the suburb of Orlando. And so it was a beautiful uh, venue and had a great turnout. And people have come from Europe 
for for these things. And so the first one was really special. One thing about it is that, uh, you know, there's a hierarchy among the musicians. Like uh, in, in, in this period I documented, there are only four musicians who played regularly at the big general assembly in Nashville in the House of God. Uh, so this gave an opportunity for younger musicians uh, and musicians who were not recognized at the top uh, to to play before the public on pretty much an equal footing. Naturally, the, uh, the the veterans and the big names like the Campbell Brothers they got the prime spots, you know, on Saturday night. But uh, but still, the other musicians got to play on the same stage and and were treated with great respect. So. And it, uh, it continued to be a, uh, a great uh, venue, a format for, for presenting the, the uh, young musicians. And because the MCs would be ministers, uh, you know, the energy was uh, at times <laughs> got, got pretty close to what there would be in this, the praise music section of a, of a worship service. So it really gave the, the public you know, the outside public, an opportunity to witness this music uh, in something very similar to uh, a church setting in many ways, not not entirely, of course. So uh, they were quite popular. And uh, and then there was one event that I have in the same section that was called the, the Music Fest, I documented, and that was down in, in uh, at the church in Pompano Beach. And... Uh, that was, in fact, a church-sponsored event, and Dorothy Ann Jacobs uh, was, I think, the head person that organized that, and uh, her cousin is uh, Daryl Blue, who's the resident steel guitarist at that church. It's a big church in a you know in an area with a dense population, so that was that was very similar. Although there was, uh, it was actually in a church, and uh, it was mostly a church crowd. There was. I don't think there was really any public there except for me. <laughs> they invited me down to document it. So that was, that was an honor. And then we had one uh, sacred steel convention was held in conjunction at the Florida folk festival. It was uh, across the street from the festival grounds in a, in a community center. So again, we had all the festival goers, some of whom were aware of the sacred steel music and, and some, uh, who weren't and were exposed to it to, for the first time. And, uh, you know, the Florida Folk Festival is largely acoustic music. So, uh, and the Sacred Steel players are characteristically quite loud. So we were in this uh, venue across the street uh, that was, you know, closed doors and air conditioned so, so they could cut loose. And uh, it was it was a ball. It was great. And again, uh, lots of younger, a lot of younger players got to uh, showcase. And they came from, you know, they came from from Detroit, and, and as far as that, that, nobody was getting paid. They just came to be part of this whole community and, and show their stuff and enjoy the camaraderie and the fellowship. Right, and, and you have that, you know, sort of blends in, you sort of mentioned the festivals and the concerts, and, and some photographs, a couple here even yes. from Italy, right, where... Um, the touring. Do you want? Is there anything you want to talk about with those like festivals and getting out? Oh, absolutely. Well, well, the well, yeah. The let me say that um, the you know what of of course I would never uh, try to coerce any any 
folk artist, whether it's from this tradition or whatever, to to do a public presentation, I would present the opportunity. And if they wanted to do it good, I'd, I'd do everything I could to facilitate them, both when I was working for the Florida Folk Life Program and then after. Um, but there has always since, probably since day one, <laughs> I know at least it goes back to the Willie Eason in the, in the late 1930s. Uh, the musicians are a draw even even uh, for for churches and gospel concerts, and so the musicians uh, typically don't get paid much in church. They're a draw. They they have the ability to make money, and uh, so they they want to play and they like being heard and appreciated. And uh, even though they're they're playing their same music at you know the national folk festival or whatever. They, uh, they feel like they're really treated like royalty and recognized and, and they're paid, well paid, and uh, they like that. Some people in the church don't like that. So there's, you know, I, I, I ran into a folklorist a couple of times who was working on her PhD. Uh, well, uh, she may not have been a folklorist. It was at uh, SEM, Society for Ethnomusicology uh, Conferences. She was from Los Angeles, I think, and she was doing her uh, uh, doctorate on uh, mega churches, and they have the same problem, only bigger, <laughs> because because you know mega churches where they get congregations of twenty thousand people, they have major gospel stars that play, and of course they want to be paid, they want to be respected, but the clergy wants to be in control. So there's that uh, consideration and. Uh, but getting to the photos, uh, you know, there's a one of the uh, Calvin Cook playing at the National uh, Folk Festival in uh, East Lansing, Michigan. And uh, then the, there's these two photos of the Campbell brothers. I went with them on, on one of their first, I don't think it was the first, maybe their second uh, foray into Europe. But uh, we were gone for a week at an, at an Italy uh, based in Turin and then went all the way uh, up to... Uh, the Aosta Valley, but uh, they played uh, in both the large concert halls as well as uh, historic churches. Excuse me, my book was falling. I had to catch it. They uh, played in historic churches. And uh, again, what I've tried to present in my book is, is uh, images and content that's not available otherwhere. You can get on YouTube and you could watch Sacred Steel videos for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, and especially there's a lot of concert uh, shots of the Campbell brothers and others who, who have been in, on tour and, and toured up until COVID stopped things. But, uh, but I've tried to present some of the, the earlier ones and haven't, as you noticed, I, I, that's one of the smaller sections is the, the, uh, the concerts and festivals public performances. And the, sort of the last two sections move us, well, the, the, the penultimate is on the centennial that took place in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and, and the, why it was important to sort of focus or, or highlight the centennial as one of these sections in here and what you were trying well, to Well, as I mentioned early on, 
uh, they claim uh, the house of God, uh, Keith Dominion, well, even uh, the, the Jewel Dominion, uh, Church of the Living God, Jewel Dominion, they came from the same church that was founded in 1903 by a woman, and they claim that that's the first Pentecostal church organization founded by a woman. And uh, as far as I know, that's true. So they're very, very proud of that. And women play still play a, a leadership role. In fact, the chief overseer, which is the, the leader, the national leader in both organizations today, is a woman. Uh, and uh, so they're very proud of, of that, that aspect. And, uh, you know, the, the Keith Dominion, uh, House of God Keith Dominion headquarters church is in Nashville. So they had a huge centennial event. I think it was almost a week long. It seems I went up there, it was uh, at least three or four days. They had a parade uh, with floats with musicians on, the, on, on many of the floats. They had a, a reenactor that uh, looked like a mother dressed up in period costume, pulled by a horse drawn in a horse drawn carriage, you know, uh, to look like a Mother Tate from 1903. Uh, there was, uh, you know, they have some a few churches in the, in the, the British West Indies. They had a, a float from Jamaica. Uh, they had, of course, lots of uh, <laughs> lots of music and and worship service. They had a, a visit to Mother Tate's gravesite. Uh, so it it was, you know, it was definitely something I wanted to document, and I'm so glad I did. Uh, it was it was really special, and of course, it was. Uh, by that time, things were very very comfortable for me because I had already been doing this for uh, what twelve years, so pretty much everybody knew me. And uh, what's more, the uh, uh, they did their own audio and video recordings of all this, and uh, the Campbell brothers, the Campbell family was led that and, and they actually hired me to write uh, liner notes for their uh, CD album that they produced. So it was, it was a great time. Yes. I was going to say, I really love the photograph of the, the Mary Tate um, portrayal with the, I don't, I can't, I, I can't tell if it's a veil or, or like if she's just holding a, yeah, what she's holding. I think she's holding it, but I love that. Oh, flow. thank you. Yeah, the, yeah, it's it's just a, a a a scarf for a white some sort of white fabric. Yes, yeah, it was great. You know, a uh, great time, and uh, you know, pe- people uh, the street they had it on is is uh, you know there was a lot of people there not from the church. You know, so the public really enjoyed it. It was just wonderful. You know, a lot of a lot of pride there, and, and rightfully so. And you end with a, a section called Generations, where you sort of photograph not all, right? A lot of this is the the more seasoned musicians, right? The more well-established musicians throughout the book, because they are the ones that are playing in the church and at the front of the church. But you have this final section where um, it's not only the church elders, but we have some younger members who are coming into this space. So you can talk a little bit about why you wanted to make sure to sort of get these young people and also sort of capture these young people in the book? Well, the young people are very important. And, and uh, this is a classic, uh, this whole community is a classic example of how all the culture, not just the music, but I'd say especially the music is transmitted 
informally from one generation to another. Uh, uh, you know, it's not like any of this music is written down. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, the, they, uh, the younger musicians have the advantage of video. You could just use a cell phone to get a video of somebody playing. But, you know, in, in the old days, uh, the musicians would go to the General Assembly once a year is a big thing. And, and musicians, you know, uh, aspiring young musicians, say, from Florida might go up there to Nashville and they'd have to, they'd hear something new. You know, the, 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 the steel guitarists that were playing uh, always tried to come up with something a little bit new and the musicians would hear that and they'd have to, you know, whistle it or, or hum it to themselves all the way back home, you know, as they drove home and uh, to learn uh, those new licks or those new phrases. Uh, nowadays, there are some who have given workshops and lessons. Uh, as, and again, as I said, there's all a video on YouTube they can watch. So I'd say, without a doubt, the young people are learning much more quickly than they did in, in the old days. But still, the passing down from one generation to another, and especially, you know, to play the instrument is one thing. But to be a good church musician is yet another. I mean, they the musician in the church is is not there to show off their musical prowess. They're there to serve in the service and to enhance the service and to help the minister uh, uh, get the congregation to the level that they're they're trying to get to fill the congregation with the spirit. So. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that's passed from one generation to the next. And, and one example that I give is, is uh, uh, you know, Willie Eason uh, learned some things from his <clears throat> older brother, Troman, who was about 15 years older than him. There was 15 kids in the family or something. And, and, and uh, that was back in the 1930s. And then when he was on the road as an itinerant musician, I came down to Ocala, Florida in the wintertime and Henry Nelson, who was 10 years younger than Willie. So Henry was about 10 years old when he heard Willie and he said, I wanted to do everything I saw. And then Henry's son, uh, Aubrey Gent, is a very uh, highly skilled uh, musician on the lap steel and who rose to prominence. And then um, his son, A.J. Gent, is a uh, playing uh, both uh, gospel and secular R&B. And he's not only a great uh, steel player, but he's a, a singer too. So that's uh, essentially four generations or depending how you look at it, three and a half or four generations. And that's just not, uh, you know, that's, that's not untypical. That's, that's, uh, that's what's going on. So it's very much a generational thing. And I, and I wanted to bring that out. It's very important. And one thing I wanted to ask about this section is that these photo some of these photographs are 20 years old, right? The young people in the, that you photographed are all adults now. Um, so I'm wondering if you, if any of them that you know of are now like playing in the church um, or, and you might not, but if, if you do know sort of any of the projectory. Yeah, so, well, I talked about Aubrey Gent's son, who's back. He's back in the conventions. Yeah. I know uh, uh, Jason Haygood is playing. Uh, uh, Elton Noble's son, Tayon, is, uh, plays guitar, or fretted guitar, more than he does steel. But he's very much, he's an accomplished musician. Uh, uh, 
Glenn Lee's uh, or uh, Alvin Lee's kids are still pretty young, but uh, I would bet they're playing. Oh, uh, in that one shot of uh, Jamad Bats, uh, the the young fella in the striped uh, sport coat. Uh, yeah, yes, I love that. The the little <laughs> kid there who's sitting at the drums over to the right <laughs> is is uh, uh, Derek Lee Jr., one of the the son of one of the Lee boys. And he's sometimes a substitute drummer uh, for the Lee Boys if their regular drummer can't make it. If they have a you know a gig any, anywhere in the country, uh, he plays. In fact, I had a little exhibit in in Carborough, North Carolina, and he saw that photo and and you know he was he said that's me. He says uh, you were there, and I said I was there. I took the photo. <laughs> and uh, Jamad Batts, the young fellow at the Steel, as far as I know, he's still playing. So yes, they. They continue. Uh, absolutely. I can't speak for every one of them, but uh, as far as I know, they're all playing. Yeah, it's always fun to sort of see them and then wonder. <laughs> because I was like, oh, these they're all in their 20s. Oh, yeah, they're married and have three kids. They're <laughs> 30. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. It's, uh, yeah. it's pretty incredible. You know, I... I, I Especially now that the book is out, and I'm I'm trying to make sure everyone's aware of the book. I I, I visit a lot of people on Facebook, and I see this guy. This guy's 35 years old now, you know, and has three kids. It's pretty pretty striking. And you know, I remember you know Carlton Campbell, uh, who's the, the drummer on that shot in in uh, Italy. You know when. Uh, that was a few years later, but when they first made their they made their first recording here in Gainesville, I think he was 13 years old when he played drums on that CD. And now <laughs> he's uh, what 35 years old, has three kids, and he's a professor <laughs> in college. He he teaches uh, uh, recording engineer audio recording engineering. In fact, um, they've done some uh, uh, virtual some video presentations. You know. Uh, they did one recently for the NCTA, National Council for Traditional Arts. And Carlton does all the engineering. He's got, he teaches it. You know? So it's, it's uh, pretty incredible. Yes, it's been, it's been fun for me. To, and and I, I do see some of these former youngsters every now and then. It's really great. Can't get over it. <laughs> So, so we've been talking for a while, uh, and so my final question is usually um, if there's anything you're working on now, like if there's anything else you're working on or anything you're working on with this, um, that, you know, a final plug. If there's a final plug you have for anything that you're doing or working on. Something different? <laughs> it doesn't yeah, have uh, to be. <laughs> well, this this is my latest thing. I mean, this book was just published in December, so I'm, I'm working. And, you know, with the whole COVID thing, it's uh, promoting the book. It's like I can't go out and do uh, readings or, or, you know, book events. Uh, you can do things virtually like this. But I'm trying to figure out, out, out how to do that. Well, you know, I am, I'm 76, so I'm, I'm trying to be retired. <laughs> but, but of course, I, I, this is all a labor of love. Uh, but but uh, I, I am, there's a, a local African-American family. Uh, I live in Gainesville, Florida, and there's a family out towards uh, Williston, about 15 miles from here, that has a roping rodeo they've been doing for about 25 years. And uh, 
the name of their place is a little pigfoot farm, which is a snappy name. They, they're, uh, there were three generations of butchers and they used to mostly butcher hogs. So that's how they got the name. But what's really neat about it, it's this wonderful community event just because of the sheer demographics. There's more white people there than, than African-Americans, but African-Americans come from as far as uh, Alabama and Georgia and maybe even farther for this annual event. So I've been, I've, I've probably been there. It's, it's annual and I've been there eight or 10 times. So I'm, I'm doing, I'm producing a book just for them uh, to give to the brothers, the Wallace brothers, but it'll, it'll be for sale probably through blurb, you know, just as a self published print on demand, but it, it'll be available too. But that's, that's a fun project. I have a lot of images and I uh, I'm sorting through them. The other thing I'm working on uh, every day almost is they're keeping me pretty busy is I donated my sacred steel photo archives and my interviews to the Arhuli Foundation. Uh, that's the nonprofit arm of Arhuli Records. And uh, so I'm writing, uh, they're posting some of the interviews right now. So I've, I furnish a photo for each uh, interview and then write an a, a introductory paragraph about the, the interviewee. And they're keeping me pretty busy. They they have contractors that are transcribing the interviews, and uh, every time I turn around, they need three or four more photos, and they would ask me to proof the interview. And of course, I'm I'm glad to do it. It's a lot of fun. And and again, uh, I've put uh, information about those. I put updates on my Facebook page, and the community really. I'm so glad they really love it. They they can't you know they they love that they're you know, like Willie Easton's children and grandchildren, they can go hear Willie Easton. And when the photos are all digitized and up, they'll be able to look at them and, uh, you know, make whatever arrangements are who going to have so they can get prints if they need to or, or whatever. So it's, uh, that's really very nice. And of course, uh, you know, I've had such a great uh, working relationship with our Huli and Chris Strockwitz, who's now retired. He's almost 90 years old and, as some people may know, the Arhuli record label has been bought by uh, Smithsonian Folkways. So that's a great place for it to be. And uh, so everything's, the future is good and uh, the foundation is is uh, active and growing and I'm just proud to be part of it. And I think it's a wonderful place to have uh, my archival uh, goodies <laughs> placed, my documentation placed. Well, Bob, it's been really great talking to you. Um, again, this is uh, Bob Stone, who is the author and photographer of Can't Nobody Do Me Like Jesus, photographs from the Sacred Steel community. Bob, thanks for being um, here with me on New Books Network, New Books and Popular Well, Culture. thank you. It's been a pleasure and uh, hope to meet you in person someday. <laughs> uh, I've, I've <laughs> actually had, I just, uh, just this Tuesday had my uh, second vaccine shot, so uh Hopefully, uh, we'll have a, a new life, uh, uh, maybe beginning in the second half of this year. Yeah. Yes, okay. let's hope.